Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our lovely worship today. We began a new sermon series. We completed Matthew a few weeks ago, and today we began a sermon series from one of the letters of Paul to the churches in the region of Galatia. So if you would turn to Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 24, kind of looking at this whole first chapter this morning. Galatians chapter 1, we're looking at 6 and forward in a few minutes. Do you really think there's only one way to heaven? Kate asked as she reached for a cup of black coffee. Well, that's what they teach at my church, Debbie replied. Kate and Debbie were enjoying a treasured moment of peace and quiet at the teacher's lounge at Carver Elementary School. Today was that dreaded day of giving one of those standardized tests, and the tension level was escalating amongst the teachers. But that seems so narrow, so old-fashioned, so much like my mother. To tell you the truth, Debbie, you're beginning to sound like a bigot, Kate retorted. Kate felt she was close enough to Debbie to be frank about her feelings. And after all, Kate had never been one of those women who measured her words. I mean, if you believe in God and follow your heart and do your best and treat others with kindness, isn't that really all that matters? Kate continued. But Jesus claimed to be the only way to the Father. I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere Debbie mumbled with guarded enthusiasm. No doubt Jesus was a, the best example ever of sacrifice and love and selflessness, but how can the whole world's destiny rest on the shoulders of one good guy? What about Gandhi? What about Mother Teresa? God allows us to all follow our own truth. Debbie, everyone has to follow her own heart. Sharon is a Mormon, and you're a Baptist, and I'm, well, I'm becoming one with Mother Earth, and, well, part of God's creation. Who's to say you're right and I'm wrong, Kate lectured. Unknowingly, by now, she had fallen into her third-grade teacher lecture voice that she used to scold the students. The bell rang, and Debbie replied, Oh, it's time to get back to class. Time to pass out those tests. Good luck. You too, Kate responded. Debbie was relieved to end that conversation. She was a little unsure herself now and afraid of making Kate feel uncomfortable. She picked up her blue and gold Carver Cadets tote bag and made her way to the classroom. Jesus is the only way, I think, Am I being too narrow? Am I being too old-fashioned? She thought to herself as she entered the classroom of 21, count them, 21 nervous third graders. Take out your number two pencils and clear your desk, Debbie ordered as she ripped open the packet of tests. Every American Christian will eventually face Debbie's dilemma at school, in the community, and in the workplace. 
Christians are feeling pressure in today's culture to accept all expressions of faith as equally valid. In fact, 2020 did a news program that uh, addressed the Baptist efforts to lead members of other religious faiths to Christ. Concerning this active Baptist evangelism, a woman on the news program commented, this kind of religious exclusivity just does not belong in today's tolerant culture. That's her quote. More and more culture will label Christians as narrow-minded because of our exclusive claim that there is only one gospel, only one story that deserves our faith and our devotion. Attempts to add to the gospel of the apostles, however, is nothing new. Paul, in the book of Galatians, Face such attempt by Jewish Christians. We often call them Judaizers who are trying to add Jewish tradition and circumcision and dietary restrictions and law-keeping to faith in Christ as all part of this Jewish package necessary for salvation. In our first sermon from Galatians, we see how vehemently the Apostle Paul opposed all attempts to change the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing he says in verse 6 and 7 is, there is nothing else like it. Nothing else look like it. Look at verse 6. I am amazed that you so quickly deserting him who called you by grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The book of Galatians is Paul's only letter that doesn't have a thanksgiving. In every other letter that Paul writes, there's a thanksgiving where he's thankful about their progress in the faith. Well, let's start there at the beginning in verse 1. Let's look for that thanksgiving that I'm claiming is not there. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches in Galatia. When Paul writes a letter, normally the first thing we hear is the sender. The sender is Paul, an apostle. And then we have the recipients. That's the second element of a Pauline epistle. And the recipients are the churches in Galatia, verse 2. The third thing we have in one of Paul's letters is a greeting, verse 3, grace to you and peace. So sender, recipient, and then greeting, grace and peace. And the next thing we look for in a letter by Paul is a thanksgiving, where Paul is thankful for the congregation. Turn over to the, the book of Corinthians, and let's see how it, it goes there. I can show you this fourth element. So we're looking for these four elements in the letter as we find them uh, in most of his letters. Paul, there we go, 1 Corinthians 1. Now, what I'm trying to, why I pick Corinthians is, Paul's not particularly happy with the church at Corinth either. 
They've got a lot of problems too, like he's angry with some in the, the church uh, in the, regions, uh, the region of Galatia. So the Corinthian church is the model church not to follow. So he, he's not absolutely in love with what they're doing in Corinth either. So let's see if he's thankful for the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Next thing we're looking for when we read one of Paul's letters is the recipient. Look there at verse 2 again, to the church of God, which is in Corinth. And then we look thirdly for the greeting, and we find it again in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father. And then normally we look for a thanksgiving, and there it is in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. And he goes on with this long thanksgiving, I thank my God always. Now, now back to Galatians. Now, don't turn to it for time's sake, but in Philippians 1.3, the thanksgiving goes this way. He, he does love the Philippian church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy and every prayer for you all in view of your participation of the gospel from the first day until now. So I've shown you now in 1 Corinthians and Philippians that we have these four elements, sender, recipient, greeting, and thanksgiving. And so when you're reading Galatians, you're looking and you go, something's missing here. Paul is so upset with the Judaizers and the churches in the region of Galatia that it is his only letter that does not have a thanksgiving for the maturing and growing and progressive faith. He says nothing of thanks. In fact, instead of getting a thanksgiving, he gets right down to business with verse 6. I am amazed at how you are so quickly deserting him who called you by grace of Christ for a different gospel. After Paul left those churches and the Galatian region, some Jewish Christians had come in and perverted the gospel claiming that the Gentile brethren not only had to believe in the story of Christ, but they also had to keep the Jewish law. They had to be circumcised. They had to observe the dietary restrictions. And Paul was angry because he was being opposed by these false teachers in the Galatian churches. They had successfully persuaded some of Paul's believers, his converts, to accept a gospel different than the gospel of faith in Christ, the gospel of grace. Paul countered with these words, there's only one gospel, there's only one story of God's grace, and that is that God offers salvation to those who follow his crucified and resurrected son, Christ Jesus. Paul had declared that faith alone leads to salvation the apostles, including Paul, preached the gospel that called for the listeners to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, to repent for their sins, and to try to live a life of obedience. So Paul is amazed. He could hardly believe how quickly the, the Galatians had gotten off track from the story of God's grace through Jesus to a Jewish gospel, a different gospel, though he says there is no other gospel. Paul finds it disturbing that they had left the good news story of God's grace about a Messiah who died an undeserved death in their place, 
a story that ends in the glorious resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Christ. In defense, Paul makes it clear there's only one good news story. There's nothing else like it. We, too, live in a culture where the gospel is changed and perverted and twisted, where the minor is often made the major. We, too, can easily, if we're not grounded in our faith, be led astray from the one true gospel preached by the apostles to something that's a distortion of the apostles' doctrine. Too many families join churches today without asking about the beliefs and the teachings of the church. They might be more interested in music style or entertainment for their children. And the question that should be asked is this. What does your church preach as the truth of God? What does your church hold as a gospel? What story does your church tell? What gospel does it preach? What truth of God does your church cling to? We live in a society that demands options. I'm told today, though I found it hard to believe, but you walk through a drugstore, you'll find it to be true. There are 40 different kinds of Tylenol. If you go home to take a Tylenol today, there are 40 different options of Tylenol. There are 60 different options when it comes to a Kleenex. You can't blow your nose without making a decision between 60 different kinds of Kleenex. Life's gotten complicated, and we want choices. Despite all the myriad of choices, the plethora of possibilities in every other arena of life, the reality is that there is no other gospel. There is only the story of Jesus where we're saved by grace that leads to a relationship with the God of creation. People are forever trying to add to the gospel story. Like the Judaizers in Paul's day who tried to add the Jewish tradition of the gospel, Muslims have tried in history to add the chapter of Muhammad in the, the book of the Koran, and, and Mormons have tried to add the story of Joseph Smith and the, the book of Mormon. And so we too must add, join Paul's passion asserting there is but one story, one gospel, one Christ, one Lord, one baptism, and there is nothing else like it. There's a second thing that Paul says. The message is more important than the messenger. The message is more important than the messenger. Look at verses 8 through 10. But even though we, man, Paul is fired up. Even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. I don't care who the messenger is. What I care about is the message Paul is saying. Paul is saying there can be no additions, there can be no deletions to the gospel that was preached by the early apostles the closest followers of Jesus. In fact, Paul says, if I myself show up preaching a different gospel than I have preached, don't listen to me. 
If one of my missionary companions shows up trying to add to the gospel, you discount him. In fact, he says, I don't care if an angel descends from heaven and gives you a different word other than the word of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension, and the returning of Christ Jesus. Do not even believe the angel. In fact, if anybody delivers such a word as that, look at verse 8. Let him be accursed. And then if you don't think he's mad, look at verse 9. He says the same thing over again. Let me tell you again, I've told you once, if anybody comes up with a new gospel, let him receive the curses of God, he says. There's only one message, and it's more important than the messenger. Well, what is this apostle's gospel that Paul will not add to or delete from? Quickly, I'm going to give you seven things that that sort of summarize the preaching of the early apostles. Well, where did I get these seven things? How am I so sure that these are the seven things? I could change it to eight or, or ten, but in general, these seven things capture the essence of the preaching of the apostles. It comes from the early sermons in the book of Acts. We've looked at it on Sunday nights where Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost or after a healing or after he's been jailed and he stands up and he preaches the gospel tonight in our Acts study in Acts 10. He preaches it at Cornelius' house. If you look at the earliest preaching of the apostles, this is what they preached. And in fact, these sermons in Acts come before Matthew's written or Mark's written, certainly before John's written or Luke is written, John being the last, most likely. So what we find in the Acts of the Apostles is this nucleus of the preaching of the apostles. First of all, this is what they preach. God is at work for our salvation and in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There is something that happened transactional in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that was the work of God to restore his relationship with us, creator to creation. So God worked in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, following his resurrection, Jesus took his rightful place Seated at the right hand of God, he's enthroned as the cosmic Lord. That following his resurrection, Jesus took his rightful place as the enthroned Lord who sits at the right hand of God. You go read these sermons by Peter and Acts and by others, and this is, this is what they preach. Number three, that Jesus has poured forth his spirit upon his followers. That Jesus has poured forth his spirit upon his followers. In Acts, that would be the day of Pentecost, right? Where the spirit comes out and comes and and they begin to preach in languages that are not their own. That if we say Jesus is Lord, we are indwelt by his spirit. So there's some trinity there. The son has ascended to return again. But in the meantime, the spirit is present with us. Jesus has poured forth his spirit upon his followers. Number four, that those who respond to the good news, declaring the lordship of Jesus in humility and repentance, will find salvation. That those who respond to this good news, declaring the lordship of Jesus with humility and repentance, well, they'll find salvation. Number five, that the followers of Jesus indeed are the people of God, both Jew and Jew. And Gentile. 
that the followers of Jesus are the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, the church, the bride of Christ. Number six, Jesus will return for his followers. Jesus will return for his followers. And number seven, this whole plan of salvation did not surprise God, and it shouldn't have surprised the Jewish people, for it's all a part of Israel's story, the story of Jesus, because it was all foretold by the prophets. This whole plan of salvation, Isaiah spoke of it, Jeremiah spoke of it, is part of Israel's story, is told by the prophets. Those seven points pretty much summarize the gospel that cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be added to. You cannot delete from it. Sometimes we too can be fooled by polished messengers who are bringing the wrong message. Well, there's a third thing here. Paul's gospel is a gift from God. Paul's gospel is a gift from God. Look at verse 11 to the end of the chapter. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, along with my, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, I might preach to him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. In this last section, he gives us something of an autobiography. They were saying, Paul's not a real apostle. He's not an apostle like Peter. He's not an apostle like James. He got his gospel from those pillar apostles, and then he changed it and perverted it. And Paul has to do two things. He has to defend his apostleship and his gospel. So the first question he must ask is, who made me an apostle? And then he tells you the story. I was on the road to Damascus. I was persecuting the church. I was arresting men and women and bringing them back to Jerusalem to face trial. And then I saw a bright light and I was called by the resurrected Christ Jesus to be an apostle. It was God who called me to be apostle. It was the resurrected Jesus who called me to be apostle. And I got my gospel from him. I didn't even go for a long time to Jerusalem. And when I did, then I only saw Peter and that was for 15 days. And I didn't even see any of the other apostles. Oh yes, I did run into the brother of Jesus, James. But my apostleship and my gospel, Paul says, are from God. It's not even from the other 
apostles, though it matched their gospel as well. He wanted them to know that he was taught by the Christ. Look at verse 12. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I was taught by Christ, it was revealed to me by Christ, and it was centered upon Christ, this gospel. The one who had been the persecutor became the preacher of the gospel. Back to the teacher's lounge. Debbie spent a few weeks strengthening her own faith, reviewing what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Having clarified her own faith, she felt more comfortable now carrying on a conversation with Kate, who could be so forward. She wanted to be loving, but she would not allow Kate to intimidate her or make her feel ashamed for following the gospel of the New Testament. Are you anxious about getting the test results back? Debbie asked Kate as they got another moment in the the teacher's lounge. Not really, said Kate. My students have been progressing all year long, and I'm sure that yours did just fine too. Kate, I'm really sorry sometimes you think I sound too old-fashioned or too much like your mother, as you put it, when it comes to talking about my faith. But I have to tell you, I believe the New Testament teaches there's only one way to have a real relationship with God, through believing in His crucified and resurrected Son. Kate, I really don't think that I'm better than anyone else But I have found the answer to God's grace, and I'm determined to share it with others because I care for them. Do you really think Jesus was all that important, Kate inquired with a hint of protest in her voice? I really do. He was the unique son of God. The prophets foretold his birth. He lived a perfect life and died a death that substituted for my death and your death. Thus, he paid for our sins on the cross. From the historic witnesses, we know that he was in the tomb for a short while and then experienced a miraculous resurrection, a resurrection that means that all who believe in him will also defeat death. Kate, who normally did all the talking, began listening to Debbie as she spoke with new boldness and confidence about her faith. Kate, I must tell you that I have the experience of presence of Christ in my life as the presence of His Spirit. He convicts me of His sin. He brings me joy even in the midst of sorrow. He brings meaning to my life. He is the purpose of my living. I don't know, Debbie, Kate replied, but by now she was even doubting herself. It's just I can't be as sure as you are. I really wish I could. I wish I had your faith, but I don't. Kate, I hope you understand when I say that Jesus is the only way. I'm not trying to be close-minded, nor am I trying to demean others or their life in any way. But now that I've found the forgiving grace of God, it would be unthinkable for me not to share the way with others. I'm praying for you, Kate, that God will open your eyes too. Well, sometimes you you really do seem to have a lot of peace in your life, even when things are going crazy around here, Kate thought out loud. He is my peace, Kate. Time to pass out the test results, Kate said, managing to change the subject. Good luck. Good Good luck to you too, Kate said. And thanks for listening.
there is only one gospel. Not one and a half, not two, not six, not 12. I didn't make that rule. That's God's truth. There is only one way. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no man will come to the Father except he come through me. Congregation, the pressures to accept other faiths, we always want to be kind and loving. But the pressure to say there is more than one way to find eternal salvation is going to be placed upon the church of Jesus Christ as never before. But it's nothing new. Paul faced it already, and his conclusion was this. There is only one story that matters. There's only one way to the Father. And I don't care who else preaches another message, even be it an angel from heaven, it is not true. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And there was something that God was doing in his crucifixion and resurrection that could not be accomplished any other way. He's poured forth his spirit upon his people, and now we await his glorious return. But it's those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who find salvation. That message is 2,000 years old. In fact, it's older than that because it was foretold by the Hebrew prophets. It's the oldest message. Christ is the second Adam. And as all die in the first Adam, all who believe are made alive in the second. It's the only story of humanity, the story of creator and creation, finding grace in the cross of Christ Jesus. And we must not let it be perverted or changed. Let us pray. Oh God, it's not up to us to invent ways of salvation, to write new books of revelation, to proclaim new paths to heaven. It is ours to say you have provided the way, the one and only way through the crucifixion and resurrection of your son so that all who would say Jesus is Lord, Jew or Gentile will be part of the people of God. Perhaps there's someone watching by way of television and this is the first time the gospel has been placed that clearly before them and it is their day even now to say Jesus is Lord. Maybe there are others in our midst who need to come and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord or others who want to be a part of a, a church that will preach the uncompromised historic apostles gospel. Nothing added, nothing deleted. In the name of Jesus, we worship and pray. Amen.